Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am your host, Danielle Moody, and I am so excited this week to be joined by my co-host, guest co-host, Charles D. Ellison, who is the host of Reality Check on WURD in Philadelphia. Charles, thank you so much for making the time to hop into Democracy-ish with us, because that is certainly what we are in, a lot of ish. Uh, This week, this (laughs) week, we just had um, an off election year, right? We had two major races, among others, that we were watching in the country, but particularly eyes were on Virginia. Eyes were on the race of Virginia because you had Glenn Youngkin. Uh, an unknown politico, but businessman who many are referring to as Trump light. He gives you all of the Trump ideology without all of the bluster. And I had said for many years that so long as Republicans could find somebody that was a little bit more fine tuned, a little bit more strategic than Donald Trump, then 2020 would have looked a lot different than it did. What were your initial feelings with regard to the fact that after a decade, Virginia has now gone back to red. There's so many thoughts there, right? And, and we could have, I, I definitely, I really appreciate, Danielle, you inviting me here today to talk with you. Uh, you know, we've all seen better days. Uh, and, uh, you know, especially in the aftermath of this um, just disaster, this electoral disaster that took place for Democrats. I mean, it's an, it's an electoral and also political public policy disaster for our communities. You know, particularly, you know, I'm on WURDS speak primarily to a black audience uh, and people are in a real depressed, defeated state right now. But we saw these signs. You saw them. We would talk about mm-hmm. them occasionally on WURD in places like Virginia and and Republicans also looking for candidates um, that were a little less Trumpian cosmetically uh, mm-hmm. because they're realizing that, OK, you know, the, the, the Trump that we had, the Donald Trump that we had, maybe that worked in 2016. Now we're knowing four years later that doesn't work. Someone, someone a little bit more polished, a little bit more telegenic, younger, uh, who who didn't give off that kind of that that kind of Trump aura or Trump ooze, and they had that in Glenn Youngkin, and I just don't understand it. Here you had Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee. Yeah. Uh, he was a governor before. He was just the last governor before the current one, Ralph Northam, mm-hmm. right? Just won in 2013. Had sort of bucked some historic trends when he won as governor in 2013. Run on your record. 
run on your record, Terry. Like, <laughs> you know, you had a decent <laughs> record as governor. So that's the that's the first basic thing. I mean, especially if you're going back for the same job. One, run on your record. Two, we're talking about Virginia. Uh, Virginia is close to my heart. That's where my, my mother's family hails from. My grandmother mm-hmm. fl- fled the segregated Virginia South and, and moved to Philadelphia. Uh, you know, it was part of that great migration exodus. So mm-hmm. I really wanted to see, I always want to see things work out in Virginia. Virginia has an electorate that's, that's over a quarter black. Um, and so that black electorate is the key to winning decisive elections. There were many, multiple opportunities there, Danielle, right? Glenn Youngkin was basically telling people, telegraphing that, hey, listen, I'm going to return this back to the Virginia 50, 60 years ago. And I heard those stories. I was born at the time where they were just wrapping up legal Jim Crow in Virginia. I was born at that time. And I remember those stories. And I, you know, remember, you know, still white folks having in in Virginia, um, you know, having um, hangovers from Jim Crow Mm -hmm. being over in Virginia, just being around there, driving around and going into stores, in and out of stores with my grandmother and and others. Um, So he was telegraphing to Virginia voters. Hey, listen, I'm, I, I want to go back to, hey, I remember when I was in school back in Virginia back in the day, and it was so much better. Now they got this critical race theory thing, which is not even in the schools, it's in the law schools. So it's like, how did you miss that opportunity to counteract and repaint him, reportray him as the Jim Crow candidate? I mean, it, you know, it's as simple as that, and activate and motivate and energize that black electorate while at the same time saying, hey, listen, we're trying to move forward here. This is going to move us backward. Just so many missed opportunities. You know, one last thing, too. uh, One quick point here, Daniel. I want to see what your thoughts on this are Mm -hmm. as well. I I can only imagine. I I know what your thoughts are, but I want to ask you after to make us this this point. Democrats are going to have to embrace the fact that they are, and it's okay, they are the black, brown, indigenous, Asian people's party. They're the BIPOC BIPOC party. It's okay. They need to embrace that. They are the coalition party. They are the rebel alliance party. You know, get, you know, get it together. And so, you know, so they're having issues embracing the fact that they are the BIPOC, if we want to call it that, the BIPOC mm-hmm. party, mm-hmm. which is fine. You know, they're a coalitional party. Um, it, it, if you're a Republican strategist, your job is easy because all you got to do is worry about white people. So Democrats have to be a little bit more creative and innovative, embrace that Two, you know, stop hiring these uh, very expensive white political strategists who are dismissive Come on. of the power of uh, black, brown, uh, indigenous, but especially black voters in key places mm-hmm. like Virginia, because that's what we have with Terry McAuliffe. You know, you got white campaign managers, white political strategists who are overpaid. They don't want to yep. pay black political. Stra- I'm going I'm to call it as I see it. They don't want to play black political, very seasoned black political practitioners whom I know personally in the state of Virginia who get the work done, who got the job done in 2017 and got Ralph in that position right now. And they ignored folks back in Virginia in 2017. Remember Alabama? And they were like, you know, people like Black Pack were like, hey, you got untapped black voters in these corners here. They, 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 it's like we show them constantly. We're constantly teaching them these lessons and they ignore them when uh, we come down to the wire. Uh, and so, so there's that. And then, you know, also doing this thing of, waiting just to, you know, they did it in Pennsylvania. We had some really serious, crucial judicial elections statewide. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Pennsylvania Superior Court, Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court. There were two black women running for Pennsylvania Superior and Commonwealth Court. Commonwealth Court, by the way, was the only court in the country that voted for Trump when he was trying to reverse or flip the 2020 Pennsylvania election results. How did you how did you mess that up? <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? Like, who does that? 
And then you could have had a black woman in there too. Um, so it's just all these missed opportunities and, and the fact that, that, that especially white Democrats in particular want to be dismissive of the kind of electoral flex that we can offer them. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not about Democrats. I mean, I'm not here cheerleading for Democrats. It's just like I don't want the party that represents domestic terrorists getting any more foothold than they already Come have. On. I, I just don't. But, and that, that's and, the and, only alternative we have right now. I'm, I'm sorry. Go know, ahead. What, no, what you you're, you're so you're so right, because the, the fact is, is that Democrats are the BIPOC party. Right. And right. instead of embracing that truth, instead of understanding that here we have a demographic shift that we all know is impending. Republicans have used it to their advantage. They have used it as a fear tactic. Once again, I talked about this earlier um, on Instagram Live and I said, this is the new Red Scare. Remember the Red Scare from the late 1930s going all the way into the into the beginning of the 1950s, led right. by people like U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy and President Truman and J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI. It was using these relentless tactics to scare the to scare the republic into believing that communism was coming in, and so we needed to use undemocratic undemocratic tactics in order to suss out those people, suss out those revolutionaries. And this is what Republicans are doing right now. Yeah. And instead of it being communism that they're having us fear, right? It is critical race theory as their new boogeyman, right? And before that, it was oh, what about what about our history? We can't take down Confederate statues because that is our history. And then it was right. BLM and Antifa in 2020 right. that were their boogeymen. So it's like they give us the playbook. We see what they are doing. But time and right. time again, you see um, Democrats much in the way that Joe Biden was in your state, Charles, but a couple of weeks ago. Where was he going? Scranton. Scranton, right. Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah. which is his dog whistle, Democrats dog whistle to say, hey, working white class people, we see you as if they are the only working class. When we look at the demographics of who the working class are, it is majority black and brown people and largely right. women. Right? That's right. And so how is it that we are still chasing after the latest polls, Charles? And I want to get your thoughts on this. The latest polls show that 56 percent of non-college educated white women. Who did they vote for in Virginia? Yunkin. Who did they vote for in 2020? Trump. So tell me why cable news and why all of these outlets and these politicians continue to run after white women when in fact it is yeah. the BIPOC community that you should be investing in. You should absolutely be investing in that. And we see the numbers, you know, like even after 2016, right, when uh, Trump won, we saw and in, in Let's take Pennsylvania, for example. Mm -hmm. We saw that's a critical battleground state. It was the state that was decisive in Trump's win, just like it was decisive in Biden's win in 2020. Um, but we saw uh, hundreds of thousands of untapped black voters. I think it was a Howard University business professor. I forget his name, but I had him um, on uh, a while back after he wrote this, this seminal piece. I thought it was one of the best pieces of 2020 he wrote where he showed us the true numbers in all these critical states, black voters untapped. You know, mm -hmm. just left ignored. Uh, and he's like, you know, you guys got to get better at this. Like, he's like, you're leaving, you're just leaving big pockets of voters off in a corner somewhere in these key battleground states. But there is no such thing as a swing voter. It's just white no. voters. White voters who will never vote for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, there are white voters who will never vote for you, y'all. Like, you know, just get that. I mean, you're going to have the BIPOC coalition is going to be your, your, your needed, your essential black voters, your essential um, brown voters. 
Uh, you know, you might have some Latinos. Like, that's another conversation who will probably want to go buck Republican. But for the most part, you got you got that locked for the most part. And you got indigenous voters, Asian voters. You got a rise in South Asian voters in places like Georgia we saw, right? And you're going to have you're going to have white voters, particularly younger college educated white voters who are going to align with us. And that and that's good. And so keep building on that, because demographically, that's where we're headed. That's where we are as a country. There is no such thing as a white voter. I mean, as a swing voter, just just white voters who don't yep. like you, who don't like <laughs> the fact yes. that you that you also have a heavy influential black presence in your party or, you know, dictating the terms of your agenda. Um, you know, the, the the great late, great Terry Smith, a law professor who um, unfortunately passed away last year, had just wrote this book that came out at, in January of 2020 um, called White Lash. And he talks mm-hmm. about that. You know, he mm-hmm. talks about a black law professor and he talks and it was, it was just um, and I had interviewed him a couple of times. And, uh, you know, he was just talking about how like it's it's like the way that white voters are like you're not going to get these folks back. And, but they no. keep going after them. Uh, so that's that's something that that, you know, is all these forced errors. We see that we're seeing it happen in New Jersey because it's white suburb, New uh, Virginia, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, even New York, New York State, where they uh, voted against those um, those ballot measures to enhance voting rights. These are like white suburban voters, especially Karens, yeah. uh, you know, who are who are like, you know, get uncomfortable every time we start getting closer to it being, as public enemy used to say, a black planet. It's, it's, it's fear of a black planet. It's fear of a black electorate or any time where we get start seeing signs of black electorate or black voters, especially uh, flexing their political muscle. We flexed a lot of muscle. So, you know, the other piece of that, too, uh, Danielle, and your because th- we were talking about this um, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, when, just when a couple WGRT. of days ago on the show. Yeah. It, 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 so it creates it does create a conundrum and it creates a difficult position for us as black voters because we do have a responsibility as a black electorate to flex every time there is an election cycle. And there's going to be an election cycle, state, local, federal, every six months. And so but we get into this conversation every cycle where we're making a mad dash to frantically get people to register to vote to get people turned out to vote and all of this should be rote it should be just you know automatic but it's not this show from the new yorker staff writer vincent cunningham a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, 
and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. was part of the pro-democracy podcast coalition the midterms are coming and it's more important than ever that we protect and fix our elections we all know that our government is broken politicians spend more time working for themselves their big donors and their political party instead of for us we as americans have had enough of the corruption partisan bickering and gridlock look i get that all the nonsense makes you want to tune out but i'm here to tell you there's reason for hope our political system is broken now but we can fix it. That's why we've partnered with Represent Us, a nonpartisan grassroots organization that has helped notch more than 160 victories to improve our elections and give power back to the voters where it belongs. Right now until November, there are many, many ways you can get involved. Represent Us is working in cities and states to pass good government policies like ranked choice voting. And they're also recruiting folks to help staff the polls. Let's protect our elections now and for generations to come. Visit represent.us slash pod to learn more. That's represent.us slash pod. Speak to that. Like you were talking about how like uh, the psychology of this dilemma that we're in, you know, we want to turn out the vote, but it doesn't seem like we're getting the kind of support, the mobilization support we need. You know what it is? It's because Democrats never put money money in our communities in the way that they are. We are always the ones that you want to lay your hat on to say, this is why we didn't get elected. I heard it. I heard it right after the numbers started to switch in Virginia. I heard white pundits on television saying, well, black turnout was really low. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. But white rage turnout was really high. So tell me why we aren't having a segment on that. But to your point, in 2017, we saw what I always thought was the impossible happen in Alabama. You saw a Democratic U.S. senator get elected in a state that is the most red of red states, Confederate of Confederacy states, right? And why did that happen? Because black women, right, rallied to the cause and said, we don't want this pedophile representing us. We don't want this racist representing us. And that was with the absence of money from the DSCC and the DNC, because they look at these red states and where Republicans see opportunity and whether that opportunity is coming in 10 years, 20, 30 or 40 years down the road, Democrats write off. And they're like, well, if this is not going to be an easy win, we're not going to put the investment there. And their assumption is that black people have no place to go. So I don't need to give you anything, right? Because where are you going to go? You're going to go to the the neo-fascist Confederates right now? No, you're not. So you have no choice. But the thing is, black people always have a choice. BIPOC people always have a choice. And Democrats had a choice in this election, too. Because the things that we haven't talked about yet are the two people that are the reason why Democrats didn't have anything to run on, right? Because you couldn't just run on not being Trump. The two people whose hat this loss can be hung on is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Why is that? Because those are the two people that did not want to get rid of the racist institution we know as the filibuster, that did not want to vote for voting rights, that did not want to put together a bipartisan infrastructure bill and get that passed. Because as of a couple of days ago, Joe Manchin once again holds a press conference to say that he has some misgivings about the debt. Well, what about our democracy? 
What about the depth of empathy that we have in this country? What right. about the debt that we have right now in terms of the fact that our democracy is not secure? And now the Republicans have gotten hip because they have the younger, slicker Donald Trump come and ride up. And now they have a play map for what 2022 is going to look like. So, you know, for me, it's like, why don't we have the investment? And somebody had asked me the other day, you know, on social media, they're like, Danielle, do you think that it is strategic or is it really that they just don't know? And I'm just, and I'll, I'll ask no, that question know. to you, Charles. I'm like, is this strategic on the part of Democrats? Like, is there a reason why that is it is it their own innate racism? Why we why they will not embrace the BIPOC constituency that is making up the wholeness of this party? Is it strategy in the way that they are hoping to get the white voter back? It, it's it's partly misplaced strategy in the sense that there is a fear. Okay, you know, in terms of the uh, on, on the part of the like white democratic establishment, right? Uh, there is this fear of like folks like so-called white swing voters, no such thing, but white swing voters, white working class voters, white women, suburban voters, uh, that fear to, um, you know, clap back or to let them know that, hey, listen, your position is wrong. Let us show you another way um, or join our fold, join our coalition. So there's that fear, you know, of, of going against them uh, because they're so worried about losing them. So there's this partly misplaced strategy. It's partly racism and privilege. Uh, just being dismissive. And that's not just white Democrats, it's white Republicans. That's just, you know, generally speaking, that's that's why people in the political and public affairs space. And I'm saying this as someone who's been in that space as a practitioner for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that general dismissiveness, they do that with us in media uh, where they don't think that we get like this conversation you and I are having right now. You know, black man, black woman having a conversation about politics. Yep. Generally speaking, white people in, in media and political media don't think we can have these kinds of conversations at high levels. And we disprove them every day. Mm -hmm. on programs like this or programs like mine on WURD. So there's that. Uh, you know, there's there's also, uh, you know, this this sense that, um, you know, that that you, it, we're going to give them too much control. They don't want us to have the kind of control or to show or to, or to have us exercise the kind of dominance and influence that we need. You know, that question which you were just saying, Daniel, about um, how they're not making the investments, it's, it's going to be really important heading into 2022 for Democrats, for the Democratic Party, and Jamie Harrison as the DNC chair should know this. Yep. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to make those investments in time and energy and resources and constant daily conversations with community and BIPOC media, especially like black media. Like, I'll tell you every day, WURD, black, the only black-owned talk media station in the entire state of Pennsylvania, one Philadelphia and then Pennsylvania, for Democrats, for Biden in 2020, full stop. We did it because we're the black super voter station. So we set the tone. So you got to make those investments in like, whether it's WURD in, uh, in, in, in Philadelphia or WAOK in Atlanta or, uh, you know, WVON in Chicago. If you're going to, if you're trying to run in a really strong way, you got to have direct conversation. You can't just, they're just expecting us to watch and to trust white owned media, predominantly white media, like a yep. CNN or yep. MSNBC, they're thinking, yep. no, at the end of the day, black super voters, uh, motivated voters in those BIPOC communities, even like Latino voters, they trust their own outlets and their own platforms that they listen to every day, whether we're talking about politics or whether we're running the, the, the top 40 like hip hop songs of the day, right? You know, that's, that's who they're listening to. And they still refuse to make those kinds of investments or they do it at the very last minute, like, you know, just they, they give us the crumbs after they've spent all their money 
on predominantly white media and and also on they need to do it in terms of consultants and strategic advisement they're just not it, it's still kind of they're still relying on some of the same recycled and over and overworn strategists and practitioners and 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 also playbooks and and so that's got to change in a really dramatic and fundamental way as we head into 2022 we did see flashes of it like we saw it in alabama we saw it in virginia um, uh, in 2017, but there are other states where there could be potential pickups for Democrats, even in the South. It, th- there should be no reason, Danielle, while we have Southern states like Mississippi, where 40% of the residents are black. So it's like, what, 35 to 40% of the electorate yep. is black, and you can't win a Senate seat. That makes no sense. And, and you should my, be able to do that. My God, just listening to you, Charles, lay out that number just of Mississippi alone 40%, 40%. Of the state is black and yet have they ever had a black senator no and when we when we look at these numbers right we also have to see the other machinations that are at play which is the fact that if you commit a crime in certain states right hey i'm alok the host of build the change a brand new podcast from mac blue about the people at the center of progress Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details then you lose your right to vote. We saw that happen in Florida where the voters said, no, those people have already paid their dues and then they should be reinstated. Their full citizenship should be reinstated. And then the Republican electorate bucked those voters. So when we look at the demographics, we also, of these states, of these Southern states, we also have to look at the policies and the laws that they have on the book that either make it damn near impossible for black people to vote on purpose, right? So whether that is holding felonies against them and taking away the right to vote, whether it's holding debt against them, right? If you have a certain amount of debt in some states, that also eliminates your right to vote. And then you have the regular, you know, run-of-the-mill voter purging and what have you. And then the recognition that who am I voting for? Yet another white person that is not going to do anything for me that I have seen over the last decade after decade that my lot in life does never change. And so I think that that is that's part of the situation, too. And how I look at this, you know, you you mentioned Jamie and Jamie has come on 
woke AF, you know, uh, right before he became, um, he became the head of the DNC. And we have a lot of really smart black people and people of color that are in positions of power, whether it be at the DNC, the DS, uh, the, the DTRIP, you know, and, and in the Biden administration. And I'm wondering, and here's my question for you. I'm wondering is, is it, are we falling falling prey to the black faces in high spaces, right? Or is it that these people who are in this place, that they are being listened to, that they are being heard, and they're developing strategies that they know will actually work? Uh, I think we, uh, we, we have gotten complacent as a black political, black media, black advocacy, uh, black practitioner class. We have, we've gotten very complacent. Uh, you know, we've, we've gotten into these positions, each of us as individuals uh, have gotten into these positions of influence into an administration or into an elected office. And we're not understanding or we're not um, uh, recognizing or remembering, you know, where we came from, you know, who our original constituency is, the original constituency that got us elected or into that position in the first place. Back, we, we're not, we need to go back to the block and listen to black back to the block and see what they're saying. You know, like I was at this uh, event in Philadelphia yesterday. That's a election cycle tradition where all the black elected officials get together at some black owned restaurant in North mm-hmm. Philly and they hobnob. And, um, and I'm just looking around. It was the first time and I was doing it. We were doing a broadcast from words. First time I ever did it. And I'm looking around and I'm like, you know, you folks don't get it. Like there was no they were all just casual. And like, you know, that, that there is no sense of urgency, that the times that we live in are not precarious, that everything's OK. And uh, and then look at what happened. They had losses across the board, even in Pennsylvania in the judicial races. And so there's this one, there's this detachment and we have to reattach it between the grass tops. Those are the grass tops, folks, and the grass roots. We need to we need to reattach that, especially it's an imperative, particularly for our community. Uh, the, the, the second thing is that we um, have to understand that, um, you know, we, we perfected um, voter and grassroots mobilization as a black political media advocacy class back during the civil rights movement, even before the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm, and so we need mm-hmm. to like, we need to revisit and, um, and also reintroduce those lessons and those strategies and methods. That's how like white evangelicals are doing well. Cause they, they basically ripped, they bit off our rhyme. They took it out of our playbook. You know, the way that you activate large voting blocks and populations, you know, and even, you know, take over uh, things like school board meetings. Uh, yep. So, you know, yep. they're, they're, the messaging is really off too. where, um, it, you know, so that failure, that epic failure of the black political, black media class really needs to take some blame for what happened yesterday, you know, for not having these that won these direct conversations, you know, these mo- motivating conversations with the black electorate to get them ready for big races like in Virginia and New Jersey. Um, and two, you know, being so detached, like, you know, they're just satisfied with cocktails and conferences and galas, even virtually. And it's like, yo, this, we don't have time for that. It's, you know, the, the, we, we have to get real serious. This is life and death now. Another thing, you know, that, that struck me too, Danielle, is in terms of the messaging mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, the, and the various issues that were discussed during particularly this crop of races and how uh, Terry McAuliffe's team, especially, they were talking about how, you know, they, they were separating issues like they were saying, yeah, we need to talk about, you know, uh, issues that are important to the general population, like economy, jobs, public safety and education. And, you know, progressives need to learn that that their issues like um, climate crisis, uh, immigration, things, you know, they're over there. And, and I'm like, 
all these issues are all intersected. That you know, we we I, th- I think Democrats could find real power and leverage the intersectionality of various issues. Climate crisis from climate crisis is really the number one issue for everyone. Yep. Because yep. we're not going to live if we don't have clean air, clean water, and everything else. And I so mean, you can make that a frontline issue under, for everyone. Y'all were underwater in parts of Pennsylvania exactly. not a couple not a couple of weeks ago, right? You know, yeah, under, like, 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 city. <laughs> like a- absolutely underwater. And yeah. so, you know, when we decide yeah. to, to your point, to silo out these issues, to make it seem like they are not connected, everything is connected to our economy. The fact that Joe Manchin wanted to take paid family leave out of the out of right. the, the the BBB bill, well, well, what does that mean? That's attached to the economy. That is people's ability to go back to work. If I can't cross a bridge because the bridge is underwater and my car is underwater and the subway stations are flooded, that is going to affect my ability to put food and medicine on the table. Like, and this is the thing. Like, that is this is this is just Can't logic. Sell. I don't need a I don't need a degree in, in 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 climate change in order to be able to understand the connections to the economy and the fact that we don't have billions of dollars each and every year. That there are historic forest fires and historic thousand right. year floods and historic hurricanes and superstorms. Where is that money coming from? Do you have a money right. tree? Uh, over in Philadelphia that you just right, picking right. off hundred dollar bills from to give off to the federal government so that they won't do anything about. Oh, let me, let me. Go ahead. It, it, exactly. Exactly. Oh, let me tell you about like Build Back Better Act. You know, that's the other thing, too. Mm-hmm. We, we just found out what a few weeks ago, just 10 percent of Americans knew what was in that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've been having this months long conversation about this three point five trillion dollar bill and oh, this infrastructure bill over here. It's like Biden, you know, President Biden thinking he can get this done through like having people watch the negotiations. And we're just going to just magically understand what everyone is doing and what they're talking about. And here Vast majority of people don't even understand that that was the Build Back Better Act. And now we just lost a 5% cap on childcare expenses. Can you imagine? The average household spends 50% of their income on childcare. I know this as a father of three. Wow. And I'm like, childcare expenses are not, are not fun. And we just had an opportunity. We just missed a golden opportunity. How, do you not be, how are you not able to sell that? where people could have actually had their child care expenses capped to 5% of their income and the rest of the child care, the 95% of child care, Danielle, subsidized by the federal government. And it was just $3.5 trillion. It was just $350 billion a year over 10 years. So we were getting that cheap. I mean, how can you, like, fail on selling all this, on stuff like that? Or even, like, with, with the mansion, he's like, well, I got to look out for my coal people. You, you know, they, they, they keep not coming up with the counter messaging easy mm-hmm. counter message to that is like okay well joe like you can stick over here with old school uh fossil fuel economy which right now last i checked is losing jobs and also um you're losing market share or you can go to new school clean energy economy and get your folks in west virginia on board that's creating jobs right now that's actually creating jobs way faster the fossil fuel economy is losing jobs, not even creating jobs. It's like, you know, being able to show, you know, that's the other thing is that Democrats and, you know, other, you know, even some progressives, you know, they're too cerebral. It's like, you got to be punchy and you got to also come up with crystal clear, sharp messaging to make folks back on the block. Because if my folks back in the Northern section of Philly, back in the Logan section of Philly on the block, literally are not understanding these conversations about childcare, about um, climate crisis, about the, the disruptions the economy are going through, 
you're not going to be able to motivate or mobilize them. And that's the other thing. It's you, Republicans are very good at that. They come up with yep. very crisp, repetitive, clear, crisp messaging. And, and Democrats, for some reason, after years and years of getting like clocked every time on this, they still, you know, but there are people like you, like me and others we have on like our shows who know how to do this, but they don't want to listen to us. They keep being dismissive. The white privilege sets in. They're like, no, 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 no. You, you can't. You're not smart. You don't know what you're talking about. It's like, OK, keep losing another election then. You know what, before I, before we wrap today, one of the things that I do want to touch upon is what Minneapolis lost. So Minneapolis had up on to vote to defund, right, the the police force there. This is following what we all witnessed as the murder of George Floyd in broad daylight in, uh, in May of 2020. Uh, and following that, they had put a ballot measure on uh, up for a vote to re to to reorder those funds into more of a community centric uh, safety kind of committee where the police right. would not have as much power as they do. That measure, Charles, failed yesterday. It did. And yeah. it, it was, you know, I, I, I'm not shocked by the fact that it failed, because I think that, one, it was going to be historic. It's the first time uh, anything of this grandeur in terms of dealing with the problem of policing in our country was ever put up in this type of way. What do right. you make of, of the ballot measure going down, and where do you think this conversation goes next in terms of defunding the police and reimagining what public safety looks like? Yeah, I, I, it's a very good question, Danielle, um, you know, especially coming from someone who's, uh, whose hometown right now is being ravaged by high gun violence. Um, we have nearly 500 murders already in the month of October, a uh, month of November, excuse me. And uh, we had 500 murders last year. We have the highest per capita murder rate in Philadelphia right now. Um, and, and so, first of all, I, I'll say this. Um, I, I, I've, I've been, you know, kind of vocal in this conversation. I, I felt like, uh, and I'm a, I, I, I come from a messaging strategy background. And so I, I felt like defund the police, that kind of phrasing was a little bit misplaced. Um, I do think that there needs to be a reinvention and a, re- a, a dramatic overhaul of the police has mm-hmm. to happen. We need to actually transition from policing to public safety. Um, I would have gone I would have gone for more like something like purge the police because you can defund the police all you want. But the white nationalists and the insurrectionists, the white racists that shoot us and stop us and harass us every day, they're still going to be there. Yep. You know, so you need to purge those police departments. Let's talk about. So I would have been like hashtag purge the police. So I do think, you know, when you start, you know, talking to the electorate, first of all, you have to understand that half the country doesn't read above a sixth grade reading proficiency. I mean, we have like high illiteracy rates in the United States. And so, you know, folks who are trying to push sinister agendas are able to do that very easily because people are not very literate. So you're going to have to kind of be very schoolhouse rock about the way you go and go about selling your messages. And, and so you have to you, you have to kind of come up with messaging or phrasing that's not about taking things away from yeah. something or someone but you know but uh, but actually crystallizes what you're going to give to people even with the conversation on uh taxing the wealthy I, you know I, I agree with it totally agree with it 
But I think you're going to have to reconfigure that language a little bit because then you're going to have Republicans or conservatives and libertarians who are going to say, see, you're trying to take money. You're trying to penalize people who make money. And you even have like poor black folks going with that. Like, yeah, you look at them trying to steal their money. So, you know, focus more on the system. It's the systems. Let's we need to tax the, the institutions, tax the banks. You know, like what, what about these? Uh, you know, there was uh, I, I think they were doing like a transaction tax in Europe. And we had a former black congressman a long time ago from Philly who was trying to pass a transaction tax. You you tax one percent of all transactions coming out of Wall Street. You eliminate the national debt. I mean, or come on. Or the deficit. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it's like, you know, see that people can get on board with. But so it's I, I think that I, I think defund the police was a bit misplaced. I would have preferred. And so I did. I wasn't surprised. And the other thing that happened here too, Danielle, and we haven't been having a national conversation about as a black community is there are really high surges of violence in all the major urban centers, including Minneapolis. And so people are scared. And the only thing they know how to do is call the police, you know. And so we, we, we haven't had a collective community powwow or sit in the living room or in the church and say like hey how do we fix this how do we address this instead we're kind of handling it and and like you know haphazardly managing it in localized ways and so in the meantime that people black folks are scared and they're they're living in neighborhoods where there's high gun violence high homicides high not we've had over 1800 people just alone in 2021 shot in philadelphia in addition to the nearly 500 murders. So people are like, you know, the only thing they know is the police instead of smart, yep. innovative, new policing ways, which we do need to get there because here's the last point, the police are underperforming. We need to have that conversation. You know, so it's like, you know, we're, we're talking, they're, they're trying to get us on defund the police, but it's like, yo, y'all aren't doing your jobs because while we getting shot and maimed and killed, you're not catching the perpetrators, the few people out there who are who are shooting. So I wasn't surprised that that was going to happen. I knew that that was going to happen in Minneapolis because you got scared people who can't, who don't have that imagination, and who aren't, who who have leaders in the community who are not, you know, painting for them a portrait of a new kind of public safety paradigm that we do need to get to. And so it is a complex conversation, but I honestly think it can be countered effectively as we head into 2022. I really do. Uh, I appreciate you so very much, Charles. I love this conversation. And we still clearly, clearly have much, much work ahead of us to do. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody, and I want to give a great, great appreciation to my guest co-host today, Charles D. Ellison. Check out his show, Reality Check, on WURD. That is it for us, folks. We will be back next week if, in fact, God willing, we still have a country. 